Hi, I'm Chris Talbot Heindel, and you're listening to the Bitchin' Kitch Creator's Guide podcast. This is a monthly podcast aimed at helping people write more well-rounded and thoughtful pieces that are more readily accepted to our publication. So we have what we have been told are extremely strict, quote, social justice warrior guidelines, which I know was meant as an insult, but I'll take that statement with pride. And we wanted to make it as easy as possible for people to understand what those guidelines mean. Not just because we don't want to read problematic pieces anymore, but hopefully we we will eventually <laughs> change the narrative in society at least a little bit. Big and lofty goal we have as social justice warriors, trademark. <laughs> so we started these podcasts with some very broad subjects, which are all available to listen to on our website at www.talbot-heindel.com. That's T-A-L-B-O-T hyphen H-E-I-N-D-L dot com. And we're continuing those with more specific topics that relate to what we've experienced over the month or bad actor submissions we received over the month or questions people have sent us that they really want to see answered. So today we're going to be uh, talking about decolonizing our stories. Specifically, this podcast is for creators from historically marginalized communities or the intersection of many communities to decolonize their stories or think about why they might want to. And this is a very personal podcast for me. This is not, I mean, it has a lot to do with Bitch and Kitch because I'd like to see these stories, but uh, this is more personal than a professional in all honesty. And also to help white cishet people understand these stories on a deeper level. I think sometimes uh, we misunderstand these stories if we don't know them or we haven't seen them before. So to understand these stories on a deeper level, connect with them on a deeper level, understand maybe what's happening behind the scenes of what is written on the page. So our general format for those of you joining us for the first time is uh, I'll go through a brief update on what we've been up to, a feature of something I've read over the month and that we liked or that I thought was useful, and the topic at hand. I use we a lot, I'm noticing. It's mostly I, so um, (laughs) when I say we, I mean I, and I'm I'm not like we in a royal sense. It's just, you know, it's habit to say we because the Bitch and Kitch is a collaboration between me and Dana, but for the most part, these podcasts and the things I'm talking about, this is all me. So I take full responsibility for anything I say in this podcast. (laughs) So first, here's what we've been up to, and this is actually a we. So this is what the Bitch and Kitch is up to. As you may or may not have seen, we did miss just about everything BK-related last month, and I do apologize for that. We didn't have a podcast, we didn't have many social media posts, and we didn't have a newsletter, which I was planning on doing, but I just couldn't get the spoons to do it. Uh, We needed a bit of a break to regroup. Before we disappeared, (laughs) I told everyone we were going on vacation, and that part of the goals for that vacation was a fact-finding mission to decolonize my personal family history, which I did a little bit of, and that's the topic at hand later uh, in this podcast. But during our vacation, we had a death in the family. And I just want to say Paula Heindel, Dana's mother, uh, passed quickly after an 18-month battle with breast cancer. And Paula was a force who is passionate about so very many things, very passionate person, One of those things being art, and she encouraged all her 12 children to learn and explore through art. Um, One of the things we came home with was actually a huge Tupperware of photographs and artwork from all the kids and and the whole family. 
that I've been scanning and um, putting online for the whole family to have access to. And you can see, you know, the love for art is very pronounced in the whole family. Paulo is also a contributor to the BK with both artwork and stream of consciousness writing appearing in many issues, uh, especially early on, uh, not so much in the in the later years as she was, you know, in her battle with cancer. So as we were preparing for her memorial service, I read back a lot of her writing, both pieces written in the BK and um, things from her self-published book, Uncommon American Housewife, to try and find the quintessential Paula quote for her memorial card. And I found this snippet from a stream of consciousness piece that was published in the January 2011 issue that I really wanted to share. So the piece is a little bit more roast than, than this one quote that I pulled from it, but I feel like this is the quintessential Paula quote. So the p- the part goes, uh, cap that moment, entrench the verb, grapple with the nuances of fantastic fantasies, for that is where truth is found. And I'll just leave that there. So following the memorial uh, and the travel back to Denver, we've been a little bit out of the BK game and a little off our own games, um, taking care of our personal lives and mental wellness. But we're officially back into it. I posted about it on Facebook, so we are committing to being back into it. We are currently looking for pieces for the fall issue, and we'll be taking submissions for that through September 20th. We still need cover art, so that is something we definitely need, and we do have a lot more pages to fill. So check out our guidelines. Uh, It can be found under the Bidikitch Navigation on our webpage, which is www.talbot-heindel.com. Again, that's T-A-L-B-O-T hyphen H-E-I-N-D-L dot com. Please read those guidelines before submitting and submit your best. Hopefully by the time this podcast goes live, we will have our third comic of Chris Blaine's non-binary advocacy to cisgender people, which is our two-page comic strip addressing some of the things that come up as a non-binary person, which I am, if you didn't know, I'm non-binary, and how our cisgender friends and family can better advocate and affirm us. Um, The third comic, which I've started and will hopefully finish before this goes live, but if not, expect it shortly after, discusses why you should believe non-binary people when they tell you their identity instead of gatekeeping. So sometimes cisgender people will have a checklist of things they expect a non-binary or gender non-conforming person to experience or exhibit, and they'll actually withhold the use of affirming pronouns or names if they don't see these things they expect to see. So, you know, gender dysphoria being one of them. Gender dysphoria is not necessarily something that you, that every non-binary or trans or gender non-conforming person will have. And some people will be like, "Oh, you're not really non-binary because you don't you don't have gender dysphoria." The comic will address why that's incredibly harmful and dismantle kind of what's behind it. So if you have true life scenarios that you would like to see illustrated and dismantled for this project, the comic strip, feel free to send them along. I'm working entirely from true stories and true life scenarios. So you can feel free to send it along to chris at talbot-heindel.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at T-A-L-B-O-T hyphen H-E-I-N-D-L dot com. 
And you will, of course, be given full credit for anything you share unless you would prefer to remain anonymous. Obviously, we will respect your anonymity. We have also just opened our fall 2019 chapbook competition, and it will remain open through November 1st. So we are looking for an unpublished chapbook of writing, artwork, or a combination of both. And by unpublished, I mean, you know, parts can be published, but the whole thing as an entity can't have been published before. That's what I mean by unpublished. But each, each piece in it could have been published somewhere else as long as you let us know where and we can give proper credit and it's okay with the other, the place that uh, published it before. If it's all right with them and you give pop, proper credit, then we're cool with it. So um, we're looking for an unpublished chapbook of writing artwork or a combination of both between 16 to 20 pages in length. This length includes any acknowledgments page, the table of content, contents, and or a bio. So all things included. The competition is open to new, emerging, or established writers and or artists who have or have not submitted to the BK previously. We are not picky. If you want to submit to us, we would be happy to take your submission. Collaborations are also accepted. So the winner will receive their chapbook formatted, printed, and bound and sent to them. So that's 12 artists, copies for free, additional available at the cost of printing and shipping. So we won't skim anything off the top. It'll be at cost. As well as energetic promotion by us. We will promote your uh, chat book at our different tables throughout the years, online, social media, all that jazz. We'll do that. And runners-up will receive a discount on the formatting of the chat book to a print-ready version if they would like it. So we got this question before and I think we're at a place where we could possibly do this if it's not like everyone if it's everyone I, I might have a problem but we've been asked even if you don't win can you get it formatted so that they can go that the the person can go and print it themselves I would be happy to do that and I would be happy to offer you a, a discount just for participating in the chapbook competition and count your ten dollar reading fee as as part of the payment, I'd be happy to do that. I, I just want to see more writing get out there. And I know that for a lot of people, the holdup isn't so much the writing as it is formatting. And since that is something I excel at, I've been doing it for 15 years, I would be happy to help. So like the BK submissions, we do have a strict set of guidelines. So be sure to read those before submitting. Some might even say <laughs> social justice warrior guidelines. <laughs> Uh, sorry, <laughs> I know that's probably completely inappropriate, but I kind of like the title. I'm not going to lie. Okay, so there, like I mentioned before, there is a reading fee for this competition. It's $10. We try to keep it as affordable as possible. If this is a problem, please do let us know and we can discuss it. But this is to help pay for the cost to us of printing and sending the winning chapbook. For full, full transparency, it actually does not cover the cost. It has never covered the cost. But we still want to offer this competition every year because we want to see more good writing out there. We do try and re recoup some of the costs by posting the winning chapbook in our store and on Kindle. So if you do submit to us, that implies permission to do this. If and when we break even, and we haven't yet, but it could happen, you never know, we send checks to the chapbook author for all the profits made. So the chapbook is yours, the profits are yours, it does not belong to us, and you retain full rights. To check out the guidelines or submit your chapbook, check under the Bitch and Kitsch navigation on our website. Again, that's www.talbot-heindel.com, T 
T-A-L-B-O-T hyphen H-E-I-N-D-L dot com and select the Bitch and Kitsch chapbook competition in that navigation. One of these days, I might actually do some paperwork and get us a nonprofit status so then maybe we could get some grants and we won't have to charge anything and we will be able to afford to do all these things. But honestly, I'm not in that place in a business where I could like really dedicate myself to figuring all that out. But eventually, that is a goal. And finally, we are on Patreon. Speaking of the monies, uh, it's a creator support page if you're unfamiliar. So if you would like to support the creation of the BK or the story of them or Chris Blaine's non-binary advocacy as gender people or the chapbook competition or you just really, really like my podcasts, <laughs> you can head on over to our Patreon page and become a patron. So we're at TH Experience on Patreon and have many different levels of patronage, including a subscription level and a level at which you'll be added into the graphic novel project. So the website to join is www.patreon.com slash TH Experience. So on to what I read over, well, the last two months, really, since we haven't had a podcast. I've been reading a lot of nonfiction about Uh, Japanese and indigenous stories and it's been an effort to decolonize my family history for myself but I I'm going to probably touch on some of those stories later on so instead I'd like to talk about modern history by Blair Imani so this is a snapshot into the lives of 70 women girls and non-binary people who have changed the world for the better and the reason I love this book so much and I really mean so much is because it wasn't your standard list. So when you read a lot of listicle books, like I do, (laughs) I am a sucker for, you know, women in history and, you know, feminists in history and all these like listicle books. But you often read the same women over and over again. And they all tend to focus on the white cishet women with a few women of color, non-binary and or LGBTIQA2 plus folks kind of sprinkled in. Um, Anyone who's read Femme Magnifique knows what I'm talking about. It takes about until page 50 or so. And don't clock me on that. I don't remember. I just remember being like, oh my God, when am I going to have a non-white person? And then I like right about when I was going to quit, which is usually at page 50, is when I got one. So that's why I stuck with it. But uh, so it takes until about page 50 or so before you get anyone with melanin. And most of the women are of color actually towards the back of the book, which was some seriously shocking editing. I'm not gonna lie. I was like, "Mm, no, geez. Okay. So in contrast, in modern history, the list of people explored includes people who experience a marginalization intersection more so than not. So it explores the folks doing the really heavy lifting instead of the white women who showed up as the face of a movement or appropriated the movement after the heavy work was completed. And I think y'all know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about people like Alyssa Milano, who, while very well-intentioned, kind of appropriated a movement that was already started and had been worked on for 10 years by someone else. So this book specifically recognizes the heavy lifters, which I can really appreciate. I also appreciated the inclusion of younger activists. I think a lot of these compilation books skip the fact that these younger activists even exist and are really doing some heavy work at a young age. 
while at the same time <laughs> revering the fact that the historical activists started at a young age, which is kind of a weird dichotomy, but it happens. So they'll mention that Sylvia Rivera was 17 when she participated in a lot of the organizing following the Stonewall riots, but no 17-year-olds will be included in the book. Modern history is different and has a whole chapter dedicated to the girls and non-binary children who are fighting against injustice, and I really appreciate that. So the stories themselves are great. Uh, they provide a little snapshot and give Googleable things to look up or ways to find out more. The illustrations are lovely uh, by Monique Lay. They're all lovely illustrations, very simple but recognizable. And then Blair Amani also gives a glossary in the back with all kinds of info too. So I used it to quickly add a ton of groups and people onto my Twitter feed that I wanted to follow up on. So it's definitely a very hefty like collection, even though it's a very short book and these are just snapshots. In other words, I pretty much love this book and I highly recommend it. So <laughs> Today's topic is decolonizing our stories. And I have a lot of reasons why I'm talking about this today. First, obviously that was a large part of my vacation. Second, I realized by talking to a white cishet man at a family function how much white cishet people may not realize how difficult something like this can be and how it can literally change everything for a person. And third, because I'd highly recommend it to anyone who has a quote-unquote distasteful family story. So a lot of times we get these distasteful family stories from an external source and it takes a lot of effort, but it's totally worth decolonizing that story. So I wanted to talk a bit, starting out with that family function. So <laughs> this is going to sound massively unrelated, but I promise that it is. <laughs> I am a huge sci-fi nerd. I love sci-fi so much. It's pretty much the only genre that I will watch. It's, it goes sci-fi, superhero, which I consider semi-sci-fi, and fantasy. And those, those are the three. That's where the list ends. Growing up, I always thought of all supernatural or sci-fi creatures as an allegory for me as a triracial, pansexual, or non-binary individual who was pretty much alien to everyone around me. I didn't see instances of people like me in stories, so sci-fi was my allegory, and it was pretty much my go-to escape. So lately, the characters in sci-fi shows are starting to look a bit more like me as the fight for inclusion has rendered it pretty much necessary to compete, <laughs> which I appreciate. So Star Trek Discovery is a huge part of that. This fight, I, well, I don't know why I would consider it a fight. I think I was the only one getting upset because, you know, it, basically it was, it was personal for me. But this discussion with a white cishet man at the family function started over Discovery. <laughs> he claimed that Discovery was trying too hard to be PC and that it wasn't like the old Star Trek because the stories didn't have any sense. The episodes weren't episodic anymore, but seemed like soap operas to him. Naturally, I followed up and asked if he liked DS9 because I feel like DS9 is closest to Discovery out of all the treks. He said he did but he said that Discovery wasn't like that. I asked a bunch of follow-up questions so I wouldn't lob on to that obvious-to-me implication of what PC was code for, <laughs> since I didn't want to think this man was a straight-up racist as a Trekkie and as a relation by marriage. Upon further discovery, see what I did there? Unintentional. <laughs> 
I uncovered the root. This man didn't understand that at any moment, people who live on the margins and, and who get their family history or racial background stories from colonizers can learn things that shake their entire core. We were not in charge of our own stories generations ago, so we get what we're told from those that colonized us until anthropologists or historians or a whistleblower tells us differently. So all of our stories are colonized unless we have a direct link to our ancestors who were unaffected by colonization. That's fact. That's what happens. So it's not that discovery is a soap opera, Okay, I'm going to stop here. Spoilers coming for the next few minutes. (laughs) Fast forward if you don't want them. If you want to watch Discovery without knowing spoilers, I I would give it maybe three, four minutes. It probably won't take very long. Actually, maybe two to three. Well, I'm just going to get started. So, spoilers ahead. On Saru's planet, the Ba'ul is the dominating species, so they determine the history. They subjugate the Kelpians, which Saru is, an imposed religion called the Great Balance that prevents the Kelpians from reaching their age where they develop into their predatory form. So the Kelpians are forced into subservience and required to off themselves in ritual sacrifice before they actually develop into their predatory form. Because they're convinced by the Bible that they won't survive, survive the transformation and this is the most um, humane way to deal with it. In truth, the Kelpians almost drove the Ba'ul to extinction. So the Ba'ul wiped out all predatory Kelpians and those who remembered uh, the transformation and imposed this religion to control the Kelpians and preserve themselves as the dominant species. So it's a broad overview, right? And this is like something that Saru finds out as an adult. So he believed this story about how the transformation was painful, they wouldn't survive it, he was ready to off himself, but he was afraid to, and Michael wouldn't do it for him. So these are the stories that he was told, this is the religion that he believes passed down by the dominating species. Spoilers ended. (laughs) So... To a white cishet man who knows his family history and can follow it back for however long his family wished to keep the records because they were unaffected by colonization and historical rewrites and they determined their story and their records, that may seem like a soap opera. To the rest of us, this is what happens in our family history. This is what we go through. We believe we know our stories until we read something and realize we never did. For instance, something I learned on my fact-finding mission um, during my vacation that was wonderful to learn and changed how I felt about my own name, even. I had been told that when the French colonized, and yes, I do consider having to ally with a colonizing force to fight off another colonizing force to be colonizing, (laughs) especially since the French then occupied afterwards. So I had been told that When the French colonized, I had been told that the French assigned my tribe names. What I learned from my Pepe, and yes, I know that using French terms of endearment is weird considering, but it's what my grandfather wanted to be called, so it's what I call him. What I learned on this trip was that our family line picked Talbot. So my last name before marriage was Talbot. Dana's was Heindel. My family picked Talbot. 
There were two brothers with the last name Talbot that came through the reservation, and they were nice, so my ancestors took the name Talbot. It's not a soap opera. It's just a decolonizing my family history that worked out in my favor this time. <laughs> so growing up, I had two stories that were pervasive and came from external operators about my two non-white races. And those external operators were, of course, like, you know, history books and pervasive myths and societal beliefs all coming from a white colonizer lens. The United States and Canada spend a lot of resources and decades kidnapping indigenous children from their homes and putting them in boarding schools, where they beat and told horrible stories to, quote, kill the Indian, save the child. That's an actual quote. That is what they were trying to do. Kill the Indian, save the child. The United States vets, groups, and Congress worked to get the Smithsonian exhibit to remove the images and historical analysis of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and included clauses in the Japanese surrender that prohibited them from including any information about the bombs or their effects, the U.S. occupation, or anything related in any media. So I was a couple of days ago years old before I knew the whole story on that account. This is, you know, we get told stories by the dominant culture, and we spend our entire lives dismantling and decolonizing those stories and trying to find out the truth. The colonizers write the stories, and they often tell us horrible things about ourselves and our family histories. Growing up, my story about my Huron ancestry was that we were a horrible savage race that attacked other indigenous tribes, kidnapped their women and children, and had no contribution to society other than pillaging others. We were the bad guys and the last of the Mohicans. That's what I knew. <laughs> Growing up, the stories I heard about my Japanese ancestry were that they were sneaky little shits that bombed the hell out of Pearl Harbor with no warning. They were crazy little monkeys who kamikazed our planes into places, and they were racists who hated miscegenation and would be appalled at my mixed-race self. They would not accept me. They were horribly racist. They would hate me. That's what I knew. Over the last 30 years, I kept uncovering more and more that proved that those depictions were not only false, but they were handpicked by the dominating voices, so the colonizer voices, to keep poor white people at odds with my cultures and me ashamed of my own ancestry. It sounds a bit like Saru in a way. See, sci-fi is allegory. <laughs> People from marginalized communities have an ongoing abusive relationship with their government, society, and the media. It's one we never agreed to, we were kind of born into it, and one we have to decolonize if we want to have a meaningful understanding or relationship with ourselves and our cultures in context. Decolonizing is a slow going and hard to do process. So I'm, I'm not going to tell you exactly what I found because I still have a lot of fact-finding to do and I want to respect my family and, you know, what they went through. And I, I just want to be sure I understand it completely before I say anything. But upon returning to Denver, I went to an art celebration at Redline where I met the muralist Greg Deal. He and I talked a lot about decolonizing our stories and the journey back to our own stories and ancestry with historical consideration outside of the white lens. We discussed how most indigenous tribes were set up in an oral rather than written tradition, uh, where members of the tribe held, held ancestral knowledge that was passed on verbally to the next generation over time. So it was a process. 
and it it would go from you know an elder to to a younger person and it got passed down through generations we talked about how smallpox blankets and i want to take pause here whose use was intentional entirely and had already been used as a colonizing weapon prior to its use on indigenous peoples. So that I didn't learn until this year, and I was told that it was accidental my whole life. And if you don't believe me, read an indigenous people's history of the United States. There are quotes about the intentional and knowing use of smallpox blankets. So moving on, uh, smallpox blankets wiped out like 60 to 80% of tribes across the board, meaning 60 to 80% of that oral ancestral knowledge was wiped out with it uh, before a single gun came into use. So you have all that knowledge completely lost. And then following colonization, we had the boarding schools which literally beat the knowledge out and replaced it with white colonizer knowledge and history. It also removed indigenous people from a sense of place, a sense of people, or a sense of family. On top of that, you had the rampant abuse, physical and sexual, at the boarding schools, and you have generations of deeply traumatized people who have no sense of how family should be, no pride in self, and no idea how to have or maintain a healthy relationship. All of this by design. I want to emphasize that. All of this by design. The ancestral knowledge that was wiped out is not retrievable. It is lost forever. The rest could be fragmented and hard for someone removed from their tribe like myself to gain access to. I have yet to do it, but I do plan on reaching out to my tribe once I figure out my lineage names and where my Pepe was born. And I, I just want to connect and I want to request access to our ancestral knowledge. I know they don't owe me entry, but I feel a need to try. I'm not quite sure what I hope to find, but I just have this burning desire to know more than they were the bad guys in the last Thumohicans, you know? <laughs> and uh, I know that Sherman Alexi has been found to be problematic, with over 20 women accusing him of harassment, so I want to put this out there. He has apologize generally, but I have not heard of any personal apologies being accepted by his survivors, so I do not want to promote him at this time. However, he does have a quote that I think sticks with me and that I want to use right now, but again, I am not promoting him, and he is problematic. But Sherman Alexi has said, we are what we have lost, and I think a lot of us have lost our identity and our culture and our ancestral knowledge, and we are trying to regain some sense of who we are. Every new thing I learn rock my, rocks my world and changes my historical narrative retroactively. And so far, it's all been pretty positive considering where I started. So, <laughs> During that conversation, Greg also told me about an artist who wanted to use indigenous, uh, I should say, a white woman artist who wanted to use indigenous-inspired artwork. That in quotes, indigenous-inspired. <laughs> to put on their clothing and said that they had done loads of research regarding different tribes and they had a deep love and understanding and then they asked if that was appropriation, which of course it is. Which indigenous people did she pay for their time teaching her? That'd be a very important question to ask. Which indigenous people will receive the proceeds from her sales? Or does that go directly into her pocket? My question is, why does she get all that information for keeps? 
How many Indigenous people like me want my ancestral stories but don't have access at the moment or would find it like painful or hard to reach out? Some people have been wronged. You know, things happen. They're, they've been wronged by their tribe. How many people have no sense of their stories because of that? My guess is she didn't want, she didn't have information that the people she quote unquote revered didn't, but maybe she did. With the amount of resources she had by lottery of her birth as a white woman and by the amount of money in her pocket, maybe she did. Maybe she had a lot more information. She certainly had a lot more time than people who are struggling to get by would have. It's equally likely that her quote unquote research involved living next door to an indigenous tribe and observing as a comic creator who recently appropriated an indigenous folk story did for their comic. I'm not bitter. I am a little bitter. <laughs> so, you know, that was kind of a tangent, but this is painful. Like, we try so hard to decolonize our stories, and then someone with more resources than us gets there, and they're not part of it, and they want to benefit from it. You know, that's painful. I hope people can understand why there's the reaction that there is when people do this sort of thing. Um, and I hope that you, you take it to heart and aren't one of those people. So at this event, a well-meaning but problematic white woman asked question after question, prefacing each question <laughs> with how stupid the question probably was, how he didn't have to answer, how he could tell her to go away, etc. That is a power play. And I see it a lot when, when we're trying to decolonize our stories Saying how stupid the question was or how much she didn't know and pausing forced Greg to reassure her or sit in awkward silence. Of course he didn't have to answer, but it was expected of him. So saying that he didn't have to answer was kind of just a game. Saying he didn't was lip service. If he had told her to go away, what would the anecdote about speaking with Greg have been? He couldn't get angry or show anger or order her to go away. I don't want to put anything on Greg because he was completely pleasant and maybe he didn't feel the same things that I felt. But I felt that that wasn't inappropriate. So he answered her question after question. And when he suggested she do some research instead of asking him these Googleable questions, she kind of changed. Her voice got smaller. She didn't know what to Google, she said, and she vocalized that she was being a burden and she understood, which again, he was forced to reassure her again. And I'm not, I'm not saying that Greg wouldn't have reassured her anyway. I don't know how he personally felt about that. I only knew what I felt as a bystander who was in the process of decolonizing my own story. So there's a dynamic in this world where we are responsible for decolonizing our own experiences because obviously the colonizing force isn't going to do that. And then we are forced to decolonize for the ancestors of our colonizers while assuring them that we don't blame them or that it wasn't their fault or whatever else. <laughs> it's a lot of work. I provided a book suggestion. Greg provided a book suggestion. She wrote neither down and she continued to ask questions. What she was saying to me is Google was hard, but what I was hearing as someone at the intersection of mar marginalization was that her questions weren't important or interesting enough for her to bother spending her own time researching. 
She was mildly curious and considered that mild curiosity to be worth enough to take someone's time. And not just someone's time, two people's time. Two people's time who were of that marginalization. So I had questions for Greg about his work, his experience, and his mural. I got some of my questions in, but I couldn't ask them all because this white woman had questions for Greg about the, quote, Native American experience, as if there is one, and as if there aren't a ton of books and papers on the subject by people getting paid to do that work. That wasn't so much related as something that stuck in my mind. People not on the margins, please don't co-opt marginalized people's time to answer generalized questions about our intersections, especially when there are kinfolk having vibrant conversations that are meaningful and not something you get from an honest Google search. Do your own Googling, please. <laughs> so a few days ago, I finished reading Sachiko Nagasaki Bomb Survivor Story, and my whole world was rocked again. My meme, so my grandmother, was in Japan during World War II. I met my Pepe while he was stationed in Japan for the Korean War just a few years later. This book decolonized a little bit of that story for me as well. My meme hasn't really shown an interest in telling me her story. Uh, my Pepe did, which is why this trip I asked him to tell me more. When I saw him 13 years ago, he wanted to show me things and tell me things, but I was a little shit and I was like, I don't care. But this trip, it was like one of my goals to really sit down and listen to some of these family histories. After reading the story, Sachiko, I definitely want to reach out to my meme to ask if she'd be willing to tell me more. My narrative, I had been given as a U.S. student in school, what we were all told, was that the Japanese were unpredictable and brutal fighters who attacked Pearl Harbor out of nowhere, killing countless civilians. Of course, when Google became available, I learned that it was actually 103 civilians and they bombed military targets. And these were the civilian casualties of those military targets. I learned in school that we dropped the atom bombs without knowing the extent of the damage and were shocked and dismayed with what we had done and swiftly ended the war after, vowing never to drop another atomic bomb. And what I learned when I was three days ago years old was this was all a bunch of lies. The story about the two bombs erases the rest of the bombs and raids, implying it was a two-hit punch with colossal and unintended damage on Japanese soil. We never hear of other fighting there. Like, I guess, in retrospect, I should have known there was other fighting there, but we never hear about it. The U.S. firebombed Japanese civilian populations in major cities, one after the other, constantly for four years until the end of the war. Hours before the bomb dropped on Nagasaki, there was an air raid where the family had to hide out in an air raid cave. Correspondence indicates the U.S. knew exactly what a bomb of that magnitude would do. And even if you do go with the narrative that they didn't, they sent planes to measure the effects of the first bomb. The second bomb was dropped three days later after those measurements had been taken and analyzed. There is no doubt at all that the second bomb, which was larger and had more explosive force, was understood by those who dropped it. The swift end, quote-unquote, of the war came because the U.S. threatened to drop more of these weapons if the Japanese did not do an immediate, unconditional surrender. One that came with the U.S. occupation of Japan, a prevention of the publication of anything related to the war, the bombs, or the radiation poisoning happening to the survivors, 
and killing them with cancer after they survived the initial blasts. And actually a prohibition against Shintoism. So what's more colonizer than making a nation's biggest religion illegal? So a fascist U.S. occupation, while the U.S. continued to speak of democracy and freedom incessantly. The U.S. sent doctors through the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission to measure and study the lifelong effects of radiation poisoning on survivors as they died of cancer after the blasts. So these doctors were not permitted by the U.S. government to share their knowledge with Japanese physicians who are treating patients or to treat any patients themselves. They charted the effects as if the survivors were science experiments and not the victims of a heinous attack. Five years later, while the U.S. was still occupying Japan, the Korean War started, and Truman said he didn't want to see another atomic weapon used, claiming it was a terrible weapon, but he also did not say he wouldn't use one. And the U.S. became the biggest hoarder of atomic weaponry over the following years. With all this context... The fact that my grandmother was turned away from her family for marrying a U.S. soldier makes sense. So beyond the casual, Japanese people are really racist, which is what I usually got in response to any story that indicated the disownment and what I got in general. So knowing that my meme and her family lived through the constant air raids, something I hadn't known about, I had thought that since she wasn't in Nagasaki or Hiroshima, the war hadn't affected her. With this book, I can imagine her putting on her cloth air raid bonnet to try and protect her from any debris or bombs hiding in an air raid cave somewhere in Japan. I can see how working as a nanny for U.S. soldiers and going to a U.S. country line dance bar in occupied Japan would anger her family, who had starved and may have eaten hot water with wheat balls like Sachiko's family while the U.S. prevented food from getting to Japan. I don't know the specifics of what my ancestors went through, and I plan on asking my meme if she'd be willing to talk to me about it. But I at least now know what Japan went through, and know that Japanese people are really racist and hate mixed-race people is not particularly nuanced version of the whole story. When we hear our family's stories decolonized for the first time, many things happen. Maybe we get to feel a sense of relief that our ancestors aren't the assholes they're made out to be. <laughs> Maybe we get to feel a sense of pride about the things they overcame and a better appreciation for how they allowed us to begin our own story in a better place with better footing than they had. Maybe we stop blaming ourselves for our station in life because we now understand why we started where we did and why it might be harder for us than our neighbors to get further. Maybe we finally understand our own stories away from a white lens and maybe we realize that we are our ancestors wildest dreams. I love that quote. <laughs> I don't I don't know who said it, but I see it I see it quite often at, at some of the events I've been going to lately. I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. And maybe we learn that. And maybe that gives us, you know, a sense of pride. I encourage people at the intersection of any marginalized community to try and decolonize your stories. Even if you can't trace back to your own, read about decolonized stories of people who look like you. When I was at Red Line, I also spoke to Audrey Norris, an artist who tells the untold stories of women in history through art. She studies the woman and the times in which she lived in order to give her life a context and displays that story in a decolonized way. Her business is Afro Triangle, if you want to check her out. 
she told me something that I know in my heart is true. Even if you can't trace your ancestry, you can know what feels right in your heart and bones. That's not a direct quote. <laughs> I didn't write down her direct quote, but that was the gist. So even if you can't trace back your own history, read about decolonized histories of people who look like you and, you know, take on what feels right in your bones and your heart. For me, that's two-spirit identity, whether or not it's a tradition for my actual tribe. So some indigenous tribes had a place in society for two-spirit or indigenous people who fulfill a gender variant role in their tribe. And whether or not the Huron tribe practiced it, my decolonized story will include that tradition because it feels right to me. It, it gives context to me. Like I am not, you know, some freak. <laughs> I am a contributing member to society. I have gifts to give based on my identity. I encourage those with a white cishet identity to accept decolonized stories and the process of decolonizing with some empathy. Our discoveries aren't soap operatic. They're meaningful, hard-fought, and heartfelt processes that will likely take our entire lives. Your characters might be engaged in it. Other authors might be engaged in it. Your family and friends who don't have your identity might be engaged in it. It can be painful. It can be infuriating. It can be uplifting. It can be reassuring. But what it is not is social justice warrior PC annoyances that are getting in the way of your enjoyment of mass media. And that is... I, I may have overstated that. That's not what <laughs> my white cishet male relative said. But that is taken to the extreme, and I have heard those arguments. I know that was a lot, but hopefully you gleaned something from it. I would highly recommend that you check out those books I mentioned if you're interested in, in more information. So the books were Sachiko, a Nagasaki bomb survivor story, Have the Kleenexes Ready, I was a sobby mess when I wasn't outright angry. <laughs> and an indigenous people's history of the United States also have the Kleenex ready. <laughs> I also recommend that you check out Greg Deal and Audrey Norris's work. Greg's work can be found at gregdeal.com. That's G-R-E-G-G-D-E-A-L.com. And Audrey's work can be found at afrotriangledesigns.com. Additional shout-outs to Dale DeForest at D-A-L-E-D-E-F-O-R-E-S-T dot com, who I met in, at Indigenous PopEx and who talked to me about Jim Thorpe and decolonizing our stories as well. So I think I, I went on that rant about Jim Thorpe in an earlier um, podcast, and it was that same white cishet male <laughs> family member who colonized Jim Thorpe's story for a running porn story. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway I hope to see some decolonized stories for the fall issue in the submission form before the September 20th deadline just plugging that again or whatever else you'd like to send us that doesn't violate our guidelines again those guidelines can be found under the Bitch and Kitch navigation at www.talbot-heindl.com and as always happy creating